Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a mother shares her story of coping after losing a daughter to opioid addiction. Former Viking Randy Moss is headed to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and several current and former Gopher women's hockey players are heading to the Winter Olympics. But first... Tens of thousands of Minnesotans braved brisk February temperatures Tuesday night to attend their local precinct caucuses, the first step in the Democratic and Republican Party's process of endorsing candidates for the November election. What got the most attention is a straw poll of caucus goers' preferences in the race for governor. MNN's Bill Werner joins us for a recap. Bill, were there any surprises? Well, yes and no, Scott. The latest poll before the caucuses showed Hennepin County Commissioner Jeff Johnson, Republicans candidate for governor four years ago, leading the pack. And when the straw poll votes were counted, he remained well out in front of his Republican rivals with over 45%. But the interesting thing is that Johnson's nearest competitor was the undecided category of caucus voters, coming in at about 16%. There's speculation that might be because former Governor Tim Pawlenty is reportedly thinking about jumping into the race for governor, but has not made an announcement yet. We asked straw poll frontrunner Jeff Johnson about that. If those are Pawlenty's votes, then I'm beating him 45 to 15 percent. So I'll take that. That's okay with me. <laughs> but also, I, I would say, you know, we're at 15 percent undecided, and the Democrats, at, at least when I last looked, were at 13 percent undecided. And I don't think anybody's saying that 13% represents somebody who's not in the DFL race. So this, you know, we always have somewhere between 10 and 20% undecided at caucus time, and this is right in there. So I, I think people, I think people are overthinking that just a little bit. Hamlin University political analyst David Schultz agrees with Johnson about the Tim Pawlenty factor. I've always been skeptical about whether or not Tim Pawlenty um, possible gubernatorial campaign would really make much of a difference. Where the Republican Party is today versus where it was when he left office almost eight years ago is very different. And I'm not sure that Tim Pawlenty is within sort of, I could call it, the mainstream of the Republican Party in Minnesota today. So that A just surprised me uh, because it's, it's moved clearly along with the Republican Party nationwide. I think people have always overestimated strength of Tim Pawlenty in terms of a, of a candidate in Minnesota, especially on return. Let's talk about Jeff Johnson, okay, because yeah. he was Republicans' candidate for governor four years ago. He lost to Mark Correct. Dayton, which is probably not all that surprising, given the resources right. that, that Dayton had. So is he not damaged goods then for another run or not? He's probably dam- he's damaged goods, I think, in the yes. But he's also probably, I'm going to say in a race, if I can use a sports analogy, where you're looking for a varsity player, the Republicans may not have a new varsity player, and therefore he may be the, um, um, the best JV player or freshman team player that they have. But you do speak to a vulnerability he has also, is that if we look at, yes, he did really well in the caucuses, but ask how much money he's actually raised compared to the front-running Democrat. That's an enormous gap in terms of money there. He's, a, he's not in very good shape. Johnson's nearest GOP rival, former state representative and former party chair Keith Downey, 
argues things will turn in his favor. Kind of a flip-flop of what happened to Johnson four years ago when he was Republicans' candidate for governor. Four years ago, uh, Jeff Johnson came in third with 15% in the caucus night's straw poll and went on to win the endorsement. That's Keith Downey. On the Democratic side, 1st District Congressman Tim Walls took the top spot in the governor's race straw poll among a field of six with 31%. His nearest competitor, State Auditor Rebecca Otto, took about 20%. Walls says about his caucus victory. We understand this is just one one step on this journey about keeping building momentum, about making this case about... Uh, a Minnesota that works for all, a Minnesota that invests in its children, a Minnesota that innovates, and uh, that, that I think, is resonating. What's your biggest challenge now going forward? Is, is it the, and some of the pundits will say it may be the candidate that's not in the race yet on the Republican side, namely former Governor Tim Pawlenty. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, and I've always done that in my races. I, and I think it probably goes back to either my football coaching side of things. I've never spent a lot of time, you know, looking to the other side. We will have a campaign structure that'll take our message to every corner of the state. We've proven that we can get the resources necessary to do that. Uh, we're proven that we're starting tonight a good first step on uniting the Democratic Party to be ready to go to take this state in a, in a direction we know it wants to go. So that's not one that, you know, the Republicans will do their job. They'll pick someone. There'll be someone on the ballot. Um, but I'm not running against them. I'm running with a Minnesota that works for everybody. Hamlin University's David Schultz says about Walls being the apparent frontrunner among Democrats. The party establishment has come out in favor of, of, of Walls, the coalescing around him, and with the belief that you can't win the next governorship with an urban, with an urban liberal. So, so, I, so, I, so I, think, I think that's one of the issues going on here. I think another issue going on here is that... Some of the liberals just really divided amongst themselves. You've got Aaron Murphy, you have Paul Thiessen, uh, you have Rebecca Otto, kind of carving up, you know, you know, some of the uh, some of the progressive votes out there. We're going to see a pretty rapid thinning out, um, and and I don't think we're going to see too many I, too many of those people, uh, their supporters, necessarily let's say gravitating to like the Aaron Murphys and that of the world. They're probably going to coalesce. I'm guessing around Otto um, if they don't like Waltz or around Waltz. And so I think you move very rapidly to a, to a two-person campaign. That's Hamlin University professor David Schultz. Waltz's closest DFL rival, Rebecca Otto, says the first district congressman is untested in a statewide race. Otto adds when she was running for auditor at the same time Republican Governor Tim Pawlenty was running for re-election in 2006. I got more raw votes than Pawlenty, and I also won more rural counties than Pawlenty. There are a lot of ways this could play out, Scott, and we'll just have to keep watching as we move toward the state party conventions in early June. And watch we will, Bill. Thank you for that report. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A mother from western Minnesota continues her crusade against opioid addiction after losing her daughter to an overdose in 2015. MN's Tasha Radel has more. Joining me today is Shelly Elkington of Montevideo. Elkington lost her daughter Casey Joe in 2015 and soon after became an advocate in fighting the opioid epidemic, plaguing the country and every county right here in Minnesota. Shelly, can you tell me a little bit about your daughter's battle with opioids? Sure. Casey was 
diagnosed with Crohn's disease when she was in college at NDSU and ended up really struggling with that disease and needing to have surgery. Um, prior to the surgery she had in 2012, she was prescribed opioids for the pain. Um, then she had surgery, but she had been really taking high levels of those painkillers, which made her recovery so much more difficult from the surgery. She had a hard time getting pain relief. She had a hard time recovering. So the cycle really just continued for her after that surgery. She just kept taking the pills and never really getting better. So that's really what kind of catapulted her into a really an unknown addiction. She, the, the biggest trouble we had was trying to get her to realize that she was addicted to them. These were medications to her that were prescribed, so she felt they were safe. Her doctor felt they were safe. I've talked to him many times since she died. I mean, it really was not anything that was on anybody's radar, so it kind of was something that snuck up on her and all of us. After Casey's death, did you ever think you would become so involved with advocacy? After we lost Casey, it became clear that um, I actually didn't really know that this was such a bad epidemic before she died, and it had been. So that's how even out of touch I was at the time. But after we lost her, um, it really became clear to me that, that things needed to be done. And she happened to, Senator Klobuchar happened to be coming to Montevideo for a roundtable discussion. And our local police chief, Adam Christopher, called me up and said, I think you should be there. And I was hesitant at first because I wasn't sure I was ready for advocacy uh, work and um, really found out that I was. And then I ended up getting involved with um, the Steve Rumler Hope Network um, and really just surrounded myself with people who, who brought me into to advocacy work. And we know that U.S. Senator Amy Klobuchar continues to fight for stronger opioid-related laws. She's already passed some less legislation surrounding this. And uh, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I understand you were her guest to President Trump's State of the Union address a few weeks ago. Tell us about getting that invite. So I've talked to Senator Klobuchar's staff on several occasions. They'll call and ask if I wanted to meet in Litchfield or if they wanted me to do something in Rochester, and I'm used to that. So I'm, I wasn't surprised when they called. I do talk to them. They're always very nice. But I will say when she asked me that, I, I couldn't speak. <laughs> I was stunned um, because I, I do know the importance of that person that, that is the guest of, of the senators and the representatives in, in Congress. So I was, I was very honored from the, the start that, that she, one, is still so passionate about this issue and to have her select um, this issue to be, to be her guest, really. I'm, I'm honored to represent all the people that are, that are fighting this fight. And Shelley, you know, I've done a number of stories over the years um, surrounding addiction, both uh, drug addiction and alcohol addiction. And I think one of the things that sticks out in my mind that I've learned is that alcohol and drug abuse does not discriminate. So true. And I think that's the hard thing. And, and I even think about Casey being a young person and thinking about having to go to treatment. She thought of, she thought of addiction as something totally different, like a lot of Americans probably do. So for her to try and rationalize that was nearly impossible for her. One of the last things she ever said to me was, but it's not my fault, Mama. I'll never forget it. And, and so really just getting through that process is really the hardest 
Um, but you're right, it doesn't discriminate. It's sad that it's had to take this many people to get the attention. I, I will say the media plays a tremendous role in helping this. I compliment the media so much. And Shelley, I think it's fair to say that up until a few years ago, we really didn't know the full impact of how opioids were affecting our society and really everyday Minnesota families. I just think, you know, all the work that's been done in the last two years, what if we hadn't done that? Just think where we'd be. So we have a long way to go. Senator Klobuchar has done some amazing work bipartisan on legislation that I would really like to see, um, you know, get more teeth in, in Congress. She's, she works across the aisle and really, really gets it. She knows the importance of it. So we're just so happy to have her on, on a national level. Thanks again to my guest, Shelly Elkington of Montevideo. Scott, I'd like to dedicate this segment to her and her daughter, Casey Joe. Back to you. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Skull Vikings, let's win this game. Skull Vikings, honor your name. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. It was announced last week that number 84, former Viking Randy Moss, is going into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Most Vikings and football fans weren't too surprised about Moss becoming a first ballot Hall of Fame wide receiver. It turns out the people who played with Moss weren't too surprised either. Matt Burke joined the Vikings in 1998, the same year as Moss, and he says... Uh, He's a generational type of player. Uh, I think a guy that probably comes around... I don't know, once every 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, from that from that position to dominate, literally from day one. I can remember his first game and uh, caught two touchdown passes and just kind of kept uh, kept building from there. But he, you know, he, he dominated the league for a long time, and that's that's what a Hall of Famer is. And I don't know, I don't know how much it matters to him or anybody else, first ballot or not. If 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 the first ballot Hall of Fame, if if that's reserved for the the uh, the extra special best of the best, I think Randy's in that category. Any special memories or thoughts of him when, when you think of his playing? Oh, I mean, I mean, I got a million of them. I just, you know, there was nothing like it when uh, we called it Hound 2 989, when they called that play in the huddle. I didn't know what any of the numbers meant. Those were the routes. But when it said 989, I knew those were long ones. And we said 989 up front. We said, boys, let's just let's just block them up for an extra second because that ball's going deep. And, you know, when you threw it up deep to Randy, normally good things happen. What was he like in the huddle? Oh, Randy's fantastic. I mean, great in the locker room. He was funny. Um, it was just one of the guys. You know, we used to, I mean, he used to get picked on more than anybody, and and he would take it. And uh, he was uh, he was enjoyable. I mean, he's one of those guys. I look back on my career, and I'm you know grateful to get to play with somebody who's that good. But uh, but also you know to be around him every day for for seven years. You just as, as a as a retired player, you you look back and you know you're never gonna laugh like you did in the locker room. And Randy was a big part of those laughs. Hall of Fame wide receiver Chris Carter was a mentor to Moss on the Vikings, and all these years later says... The first time Randy called me on the phone, they had a draft, what he was saying he was going to do to the NFL, what he ended up doing, the person he became, you know, I mean, he'll be a lifelong friend for me. Current Vikings coach Mike Zimmer putting it succinctly says of Moss... He's an unbelievable player. Uh, I never could stop him, so, uh, you know, he was, he was great. Moss himself described the hours leading up to his getting the word that he was in the hall. Well, the one thing about it, um, I just wanted to try to stay, you know, even keel, no ups and downs. I know it was going to be just a long day, and I tried to stay busy in the morning. Uh, I had a couple of events I had to do, so I just tried to take my focus and, and, and keep it off the hall until 3 o'clock. So 
when three o'clock came, you know, it's when all the nerves start settling in and, you know, once I'm looking at the clock, the, the, the clock was ticking slow. So when four o'clock hit, here we go, guys, here we go. Here, the process starts then. So I just tried to ease my nerves, just really just laying across the bed, nothing crazy. Nobody was really moving around the room and um, just looking on social media. So then the door, it knocked and um, I think I just just start getting excited and see Mr. Baker at the door and you know all the emotions just you know caught the best of caught the best of me because it has been a long journey. I think one of the things that you're going to hear a lot of guys talk about by being able to put this jacket on is the journeys. It's different different walks of life, uh, but we've all had different journeys. But it ends in a Pro Football Hall of Fame, so it's been a great day. I spoke with Moss after the announcement. What does it mean to you to get this honor in Minnesota? It means the it means the world to me. Um, I think if I would have got it at any other stadium, probably wouldn't have been as real. I'd have been happy. I'd have been ecstatic. But I started the season out in the U.S. Bank Stadium, going in the Ring of Honor. And now I'm finishing Super Bowl Sunday, and now I'm in the National Pro Football Hall of Fame. It's like a dream come true. I mean, that's, you're talking about a storybook ending. I mean, you just think about a 14-year career, a lot of highs, a lot of lows. Go in the ring of honor at the beginning of the season in one stadium, and then you go in the Hall of Fame, the last game of the season in the same stadium. I don't know how many people can write that story, but that's mine. It's not a fairy tale. It's a real storybook ending. You talked about the significance of Coach Green. Did you get an opportunity during his lifetime to tell him how much you appreciated what he did for you? I think throughout the time of him being in Minnesota, um, I extended, made sure that he knew, but I don't think he really understood how I really felt about him giving me the opportunity to, to play this game. I know, to answer your question, no. And that's why it hurts me now to know that they always say when people gone, when people's, when people are gone, is when you, oh, I forgot to tell them, oh, this, no, I, I, you know, I know, I know, I know this for a fact. I know Coach Green is looking down on me and smiling cheek to cheek because you know why? He drafted me. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't a fifth round pick. I wasn't a sixth round pick. I was the 21st pick of the first round. So he saw something in me that he knew that could help the team, that can help the state, and that can help him as an individual, as a head coach too. So am I forever grateful? Yeah, I'm forever grateful because 20 guys going before me and I'm the 21st guy go, that, that, that goes, man, I got a jacket on now. So hard work does pay off. You talked a little bit about ups and downs in your career to get to this point. Do you have any regrets about the downs at all? I don't have one regret. Randy Moss enters the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, officially in August. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The 2018 Winter Olympics will have a lot of Minnesota flavor. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm has one of the big Minnesota storylines for the Games as eight current or former Gopher women's hockey players will be taking part. 
Scott, current golfer Kelly Panic of Plymouth, along with former golfers Lee Steckline of Roseville, Gigi Marvin of War Road, Hannah Brandt of Vadness Heights, Danny Cameronisi of Plymouth, and Amanda Kessel of Madison, Wisconsin, are all on Team USA. There are also two former golfers playing for Team Finland. I sat down with Golden Gopher head coach Brad Frost, who will be watching the games from his living room with great pride. Well, it's really, really exciting. You know, we first and foremost recruit really good kids that are good hockey players. We want them to have a great experience here, hopefully win a national championship in their time and and get a great degree. But the majority of them want to go on and play further and represent their country in the Olympics, and we want to help them get there as as best we can. And so to see the eight that are going to be there uh, this year is is, uh, an exciting time for our program, but more importantly, really exciting for them and their families. I would guess it doesn't get old for you. I mean, you've had 15 Olympians that you've coached over the years, but I'm sure it's a new experience every time. It really is. And you know, especially for first-timers. Hannah Brandt was one of the last cuts four years ago, and now she's on the team, Danny Cameronese, uh on the team, and then our current uh, player, Kelly Panic, also on the team for the first time. And so, you know, going to multiple Olympics is incredible, but when it's your first time, it's pretty darn exciting. It's a little bit of a time, well, not a little bit, it's a big time difference, so I suppose that would create a challenge not just for you as a, as a big hockey buff, but everyone who wants to follow this team. Do you, have, you, have you been able to try to make plans on how, how you can handle that? It's going to be difficult. Uh, their first game, what it's at, I believe, at 1:40 in the morning, and and then there's another one at. Uh, I think they play Canada, which will be good at at 9:10, uh, maybe in in the evening, which is actually good in comparison to the 1:30, uh, 2:30, 3:30 in the morning. But we'll find a way to watch them, or at least uh, DVR them and and watch them in the morning. I'm going to ask you because as fans watch, I'm going to ask you. This we'll kind of go through a quick scouting report on each one of the Gophers that have, that have been in. So when people watch, kind of what to watch for. So Kelly Pan is is a, a current member of your team, the Gophers, and she's on the American team. What what kind of player is she? Yeah, well, last year she led the the whole country in points, and and it was kind of her coming out party. She wasn't really involved in the USA hockey system prior to that, and was able to to get invited to the World Championships and played really well, and that really cemented her time on the. Uh, uh, on the Olympic team, but really good vision, kind of slows the game down, uh, has the ability to score as well, but is just a really good uh, team player and, and can advance the puck and, and put it in the net. You mentioned Hannah Brandt almost made the team last time. She's on the team this time. She's from the Twin Cities, and I'm sure she's excited. Uh, what can we see from her? Yeah, Hannah's kind of a, a real complete player, um, has the ability to score and also the ability to set it up. You know, she got cut, uh, and they mentioned her speed being the main factor that, that she didn't make it four years ago, and she worked really hard on that uh, over the last three and a half years to get to this point. And she's still not somebody that's going to blind you with her speed, but her speed is much better, and, and she's got the ability to, to impact the game. Somebody, I think, who is a, a fast skater, Danny Cameronisi, uh, she's on the team as well and I've always uh, looked good wearing maroon and gold at Red Arena, I know that. No doubt. I uh, would like to have her back um, for uh, another year if we could. But, uh, no, she puts great energy on the puck, and, and the majority of Danny's goals are, are from about 10 feet out from the net. She knows where to get to, and she's willing to pay the price there, take a, take a hit or a slash or a cross-check, but that puck's generally going to go on the net. Amanda Kessel, of course, comes from the uh, the family. Her brother is Phil Kessel, uh, an NHLer, and uh, Amanda, at, at a time, and maybe she still is, you can enlighten us, but at one time she was probably the best women's player in the world. Yeah, you know, she... Uh in the last Olympics prior to it, she is when she suffered her concussion and was cleared for the Olympics, was feeling better, but shortly after that had those post-concussion symptoms and really missed the next two years. Um, but fortunately, uh, we were able to uh, get her as healthy as possible and, and have her come back and play for us, and she helped us win that national championship in 2016. But what's really neat for 
uh, Hannah, Danny, and Amanda is they've been playing online together, and so um, they played together when they were here, and now they're playing together on the biggest stage in the world. And Lee Steckline, who was, I think, what, a two- or three-time captain for the Gophers, and um, just a big presence as a, as a defender. Uh, tell us about her. Yeah, great defenseman that uh, uses her size to her advantage. She's more of a defensive defenseman, but somebody you want on the ice as much as possible. Uh, can chip in offensively, but is a, a really nice player. I feel old when I say Gigi Marvin is one of the older players on the team, 09, and I'm like, where did the time go? But uh, she just keeps plugging away and uh, another top flight player. Yeah, yeah, very much so. What's uh, interesting is, you know, she's kind of gone from playing forward for us, then was uh, playing defense for, for the U.S. team, and now it looks like they have her back at forward. And so she's just got the ability to, to play both ends of the rink, whether it's forward or, or defense. And uh, like you mentioned, one of the older players on the team and, and one of the more veteran players. Those are the six Americans on the team from the University of Minnesota. You have two other players uh, that are representing Finland. Tell us about uh, those two. Yeah, so Nora Ratu, who uh, I think most people know, this is actually, Mike, her fourth Olympics. Uh, which is just absolutely crazy. Her first one, she was 15 years old. She's just uh, one of the best goalies in the world, if not the best goalie in the world. If, if Finland's going to medal, uh, it's going to be because of her. Uh, they have a, a nice team behind her, but they're definitely not uh, yet at the level of Canada or, or the United States. And then Mary Eloshua, a big, strong defenseman for us, and this is her second Olympics, and really excited for her and and Nora to represent their, their country once again. Scott, there are also a couple of other Minnesota connections with this team. The head coach is former Gopher men's star goaltender Rob Stauber, while his assistant is former Gopher men's player Brett Strott. And two former Minnesota Duluth stars are also on the team, Maddie Rooney of Andover and Sydney Morin of Minnetonka. Scott? Thank you, Mike. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.